0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we delve into the US market to see what we can learn from the recent activity in the technology sector, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Wealth and Investments, Holly Briggs, Director of Product Management at Loomis Sales, Samina Chowdhury, Senior Fund Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Hello, welcome to this week's
1: Word on the Street podcast, and we're going to feature the US market and specifically the tech sector because, well, frankly, that's where a lot of the action has been at the moment. So Will and I are really lucky to have two perfect guests. These ladies are experts in their field. So I'm joined by Holly Briggs. Holly, do you mind introducing yourself, letting our listeners know a little bit
2: about you? Hi, good morning. Thanks, everyone. I'm Holly Briggs. I'm with Loomis Sales. I'm the Director of Product Management for the Growth Equity Strategies team.
1: Brilliant. So um, definitely in the hot seat and able to give us uh, real insight on on the US market and the tech sector in particular. And Samina, hi, how are you?
3: Hi, Nikki. i Thank you. Thanks for having us today. No, not at all. And and Samina, can you just let our
1: listeners know a little bit about, about what you do with us?
3: Of course. So I'm part of the fund and manager selection team um, at Barclays and I cover uh, US and global equities.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I'm not going to ask Will to no, tell us all what he does moment. because uh, <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. our resident historian. But as always, it's super helpful to get a bit of context about what's been going on in, in the world of markets. But, but specifically, Will, this week, let's focus on the u s economy given given the guests that we that we have, so obviously the u s anyway is the the cornerstone of the global economy and although clearly we've seen this incredible rise from from China over the last few decades, it still seems to be the sort of bellwether for capital markets a, across the world so right now, as we're all keeping everything cross that Omicron is is somewhat fading. What picture are you seeing, Will? And what can you share with the listeners about, about the outlook from here?
4: And, and you're totally right, Nikki. You know, the US economy very much sets the drumbeat, uh, is the drumbeat for the rest of the, the world economy uh, and its capital markets. that that's So it's still the most important economy to look at for investors. Uh, and the good news is, like you said, the economy's recovered rapidly from the kind of giant blows landed by the pandemic so far. Multiple distortions linger, of course. Uh, You know, COVID-19 and the various policy responses, as we've talked about a lot, they've done a lot to sculpt the US private sector's needs and wants, much like everywhere else. Uh, And we still cannot really be sure the extent to which some of these changes will linger. And this really is a key source of uncertainty at the moment, as we've been saying. Now, you know, last week we had sort of very important monthly employment data, which did, I mean, it's incredibly noisy, this employment data. I mean, you get huge revisions, which make it very uncomfortable to kind of lean on with any uh, With any confidence, but it did show some very welcome recovery in female labor force participation, for example. However, uh, you know, back to that kind of lingering distortion piece, overall participation in the labor force remains well down on pre pandemic trends. Similarly, we are seeing some evidence that consumers are shifting back towards services spending after the kind of historic goods demand shock of 2021. However, you know, what will be normal? You know, more than ever a useless word, I guess. But will Americans travel as much, eat out as much? Well will they work? How will they work? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, these are really unanswered questions. Now, in amongst all of this, the focus is, of course, on inflation, uh, particularly today as it goes. We've just literally had another month of data showing, you know, shockingly high inflation, higher even than many had uh, expected uh, in spite of all the warning. And uh, there are as you know, many reasons why inflation remains so far above the economy's recent experience. And we really have discussed this a lot, so I don't want to go through it again, but it's perhaps easiest characterised and oversimplified as the result of kind of giant stimulated demand coming up against pandemic constrained supply. Like I say, that oversimplifies and perhaps paints an unfair picture of many supply chains, uh, which have stood up remarkably well to this kind of supercharged demand, but does point to why many see this, uh, still see this kind of hump in price pressure and inflation uh, as exactly that, rather than a, a new trend of, Problematic inflation. But in this context, you know, i.e., you know, a more or less recovered US economy with tight labor markets, i.e., not that many workers on the sidelines, the fact that central bankers have the accelerator, or at least the bit they have the influence, some influence over, firmly to the floor looks increasingly inappropriate. Now, to that end, we've seen a sharp change in the Federal Reserve's posture um, these last couple of months. And again, this is something we've discussed a lot. Um, It was only a year ago. Remember that investors would brace for the world economy, world's most important central bank to begin raising interest rates deep into 2024. I think April 2024 was the, uh, it was a year ago. Now that liftoff, you know, now that liftoff is imminent, likely next month. And the debate really, you know, and again, changing today uh, is whether they're going to go with 25 basis points or 50 basis points straight from the op- off. Not only that, um, but for much of this year, investors have been adding to expected rate rises for the years ahead. So last I looked, interest rate swaps are suggesting that the Federal Reserve will be at 100 basis points by July now. So it's really quite a big shift. Now, as recent weeks have highlighted, this theme will be, you know, a really key driver of um, financial markets in the near term. Now, the other point to to bear in mind, I know I'm banged on a lot, but it's a lot to get into the context points before we get into the real sort of meat of the discussion uh, with Holly and and Samina. But uh, the other point to bear in mind is that while investors, you know, they tend to react instantaneously to central bank commentary and decisions, you know, adjusting their forecasts as a result uh, instantaneously, the economy tends to respond with a significant lag. Uh, Higher interest rates take a while, even months to be absorbed into the system and actually begin to influence uh, many consumers and businesses. In that context, uh, you know, in the context of a kind of, you know, brisk expected rate rising cycle, which I've just talked about, you know, 100 basis points by July, potentially, it'll be very hard for central bankers to know how much is too little or too much uh, in real time. So talk of decisions being dependent on the data is all well and good, But with interest rates moving so fast, that data will be speaking often of an economy as it was rather than as it is and might be uh, more than usual. Now, interestingly, parts of the US yield curve are starting to invert, meaning longer term implied interest rates have actually fallen below shorter term implied interest rates. Now, this is often seen as a reliable kind of auger of doom, recession ahead. Uh, So, Even before they've started raising interest rates, the market's starting to worry that the Federal Reserve is going to be corralled into hiking interest rates too fast uh, and inflict a recession on the economy. Don't get me wrong, uh, this is one of the risks, but that should not, in our opinion, just be your base case just yet. But it does go to show that we're at a complicated juncture. Sorry, I prattled on quite (laughs) a lot on that one, but there's so much going on at the moment, really.
1: Well, like you say, it's important context. And of course, taking that into market land... In the world of U.S. stocks and bonds, we've seen an incredible outperformance of you know, other world markets over, over the last couple of decades. So thinking ahead now, given that backdrop that you have just talked about, is it right that we might expect a slightly more muted return profile, given where valuations are here and now?
4: Yeah, I mean, like you say, uh, you, you're right, US stocks and bonds have trounced uh, pretty much all comers this last decade and valuations are high, which is important, but, you know, not, not, not doesn't have to be definitive. And the question is, you know, will the mix of factors from regulatory to technological, you know, continue to combine in their favour? And, I, you know, the regulators' oft-cited warning is important to bear in mind here, past performance really can be a poor indicator of future returns. It is uh, perfectly possible, nonetheless, that U.S. capital markets continue to rule the world of investment returns in the decad- decades ahead. Nonetheless, you know, in the context of that valuation starting point, as well as the apparent, you know, shifting sands of global regulatory, macroeconomic, and wider backdrop, it, it makes sense to tether your savings to a wider array of geographies. Now, we've always thought that uh, the next technological breakthrough can come from anywhere at any time. Uh, well, as we've always said, you know the primary beneficiaries can be similarly uh, far flung. So invest accordingly. Now we can All get right. on with the real, the real, the really important bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. So, so Holly, I'd love to bring you in here because you know a lot of what you can bring to life for our listeners is is around the types of companies that that I know your fund is focused on. It's been right at the centre of of the kind of market hullabaloo that we've that we've observed so far this year. I, I should just remind our listeners that when we talk about particular companies and you know I know Holly you'll probably bring some to life it's it's just about illustrating some of the the process that that you follow and I know when Samina will talk about the process she follows it's it's not a recommendation in any way around particular companies so Hopefully, our listeners will will take this conversation in that vein. I would advise them to do so. It's definitely not a personal recommendation. So, so Holly, your Loomis Fund, you've been a very long-term owner of both Amazon and uh, Meta, which some of our listeners may not know is, is the trading name now for Facebook. And these are clearly companies that have seen incredible share price movements over the last couple of weeks, you know, one up, one down. And I know that you're very much a long term investor, keen to sort of look through the turbulence and encourage fund holders to do the same. But in the last few weeks, given the extremes that we've seen, what's your view on that? And and perhaps we could just go back to at the point at which you first, for your fund, became an investor in in Facebook as was, what was the case for that? And, And has that changed now, given that earnings announcement we saw last week, maybe you could bring that to life for us.
2: Certainly. Thank you very much, Nikki. And to your point, we really are trying to exemplify the philosophy and process here. So, you know, any comments we make about the companies in our portfolio is really best understood in that context. We're an active equity manager. What we want to do is own quality companies with secular long-term profitable growth. And we only invest, we only want to own them when they're selling at a meaningful discount to what we believe is the company's true worth or intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. Meta is a company we bought at the IPO in 2012. So yes, we've been a long-term holder of Facebook, then Facebook, now Meta. Uh, Putting Meta uh, into the context of our investment philosophy, we believe it's a high-quality company. It benefits from the secular shift from traditional advertising to online advertising, and it's positioned for strong and sustainable growth over our long-term investment time horizon. Our investment models are at least five years, uh, more typically 10 years as we build our valuation models. Even before the recent drawdown, Facebook or Meta was selling at a significant discount to our estimate of intrinsic value. Just as we think about where is the market in terms of valuations, you know, it's certainly a case-by-case uh, situation when you're a bottom-up uh, equity investor such as we are. Looking at the share price and the dramatic drawdown, it was really brought on by uh, immediate investor reaction. What was the word that we Will used? Instantaneous reaction by investors uh, to the fourth quarter reports. So it was mixed growth was strong it was above expectations for revenue and for free cash flow growth as well as the engagement metrics like how many investor i mean how many users engage on a daily monthly basis and when we look across all of the platforms managed by meta facebook instagram whatsapp we see that nearly 3 billion users globally are engaging on a daily basis The report also showed operating expenses were greater than expectations, and then add to that, uh, that met a guided lower for the coming quarter, and that guidance uh, was well below expectation. So that's what led to the dramatic drawdown of more than 20%. So what's really going on here? Well, the the biggest near-term headwind that I think is on everyone's mind arises from the recent privacy restrictions implemented by Apple. So we believe that that led to a lot of reactions given the uh, earnings report. However, Meta actually reported on these headwinds in the third quarter that the Apple iOS was decreasing the accuracy of its ad targeting and also contributing to some under-reporting of sales conversions. And during the most recent quarter, Meta has closed that gap by about half, and they'll continue to improve that this year in 2022. And I think it's also important to remember that Apple's changes impact not just Facebook, but the broader mobile advertising ecosystem uh, as well. So we believe that as a function of its competitive advantages, its brand, its scale, we believe that the company remains positioned well relative to its peers. And there's no change to our assessment of uh, Facebook's quality or the secular growth opportunities. Another bit of information in that earnings report uh, was around additional capital expenditures, which reflect transition to a new product format, which is the short form video. Think of it as, as TikTok, for example. And so, how does this impact? You know, over our ownership of Facebook or Meta, the company's gone through several product transitions. I'm not sure many people remember that when they went public in 2012, they did not have a mobile platform, it was a desktop platform. Shortly thereafter, they transitioned to a mobile platform. And then more recently, we saw the newsfeed transition to stories. And now we're seeing this shift to the short term video or short form video. Each of these transitions requires capital expenditures. That's why we look for free cash flow growth. Despite whatever's going on in in the markets in terms of borrowing rates or interest rates, Facebook can fund its own future growth. So you've got these capital expenditures, which they're funding themselves, which is a good thing. But then that is followed on by only a gradual revenue ramp up, right? So it creates pressures on the top line, margins, earnings, the whole thing. But over time, Those required investments to maintain their competitive advantages decrease and revenues increase. So one of the things that we look at, not only their past success in making these transitions, specific to the short form video, Instagram launched its Reels, R-E-E-L-S product, just last summer around August or a couple of years ago, August 2020. It is now Meta's fastest growing content format and the largest contributor to engagement. So it's a necessary cycle for the sustainable competitive advantages and long-term growth.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. And I suspect I'm not the only person that is listening to you thinking, wow, you speak with such composure. <laughs> and clearly, as an investor, you have to have composure through, through these kinds of situations. But but I guess uh, turning to a, to a stock again that, or a company that certainly I can put my hand up and say in the Eggers household, Amazon seems to be a, a daily occurrence knocking on the door. Um, but but clearly they've really sort of owned the shopping experience uh, over the last few decades. And whilst from a stock perspective, a lot of the commentary is around how expensive the stock is, and that you know, the good news is priced in, they've benefited, you know, have they, have they sort of peak benefited from COVID changes in the way that, that we shop and operate? What do you think that you and your team sort of saw that many other uh, holders who dumped the stock didn't see as, as that valuation started to get more and more expensive? Are we at that stage where the good news is already in the price, or, or should we be able to to foresee, you know, perhaps some positive shocks in the future? I guess they wouldn't be shocks if we could foresee them, but, <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully, you know what I mean. Is the market efficient, or could we could we potentially see more to come from here?
2: I love the way you pose that question, and you know, over the long term, the market is efficient, but near term investors, all of us, we can see it in investing, but we can see it in many aspects of our lives. You know, we are creatures of behavioral biases, you know, we're still prompted through experiences from our ancestors, you know, the fight or flight, fear and greed, things like that. And so we see that that, at moments, creates a significant divergence from efficient market pricing, right? So at any point in time, a given stock price is on a continuum between efficient and inefficient. We know that these behavioral reactions, sort of knee-jerk reactions almost, if you will, recur repeatedly. They're they're very difficult to resist. And our goal is to maintain the deep research and valuation models so that we have the composure to take advantage of those uh, when they occur. A characteristic of the companies that we're looking for. And we're looking for, you know, specific companies that have the characteristics we're seeking and we're patiently waiting uh, for the price that we require. And we own everything at a discount to intrinsic value. The larger our position size, the deeper that discount to intrinsic value. And so Amazon is one of our largest positions, Meaning, yes, we see them selling at a significant discount to intrinsic value. So what is it that we see that others may not? And I think it's largely tied to our long-term view and our understanding of what that total addressable market is. We've owned Amazon since inception of the strategy, which was before uh, the fund, which dates back 15 and a half years to 2006. We've owned Amazon nonstop. Since that time, it's been in our top 10 that entire time. So what do we see? I mean, your question is well posed in the sense that online shopping isn't a new concept. It's well known. It's well researched. Right. And yet short term investors can miss the scale of this addressable market. We estimate that annual retail spending globally, ex-China, where Amazon doesn't uh, operate, is about 13 trillion dollars. When you look at the penetration of e-commerce into that addressable market, it's 14%. Right? In 2021, it's 14%. When we bought Amazon in 2006, that penetration was 3%. So you've seen 15 and a half years of 20, 30, 40, 20, 30, annualized growth. And the needle on penetration has only moved from 3 to 14 We think there's a long runway of growth ahead that is going to be a penetration rate of at least 30%. So if it took 15 and a half years to move that needle 11 points, and we still have 16 points to go in a growing market, that's not something that's going to be realized in the next year, in the next five years, or even in the next decade. So we look for those large addressable markets. And this can be very different from some of the other companies that saw, like Amazon, huge growth rates in 2020 and into 2021. But for some of those companies where they don't have a large addressable market, they've pulled through sales early that now they won't have later. But when you look at the size of the addressable market for Amazon, they might have trouble lapping those sales year over year, but they have not dented in any meaningful way their future growth. And don't forget that they also have their cloud services, right? AWS is another secular driver uh, that they're benefiting from, and that's the transition to cloud computing. Amazon's largest offering is infrastructure as a service, where they capture about 10% of what we believe is an $800 billion market. And they have 50% market share, which is almost two times as large as Microsoft which is their second largest uh, competitor there. You know, the last thing I want to say is thinking about uh, Amazon and in the context of Facebook, or maybe it's, you know, Facebook in the context of of Amazon. But during the last 15 years that we've owned Amazon, its stock has experienced 11 drawdowns of 20% or more. And I don't mean 21%, I mean 35%, 42%, 11 times. And we've held it through those drawdowns. And still, the stock has outperformed the Russell 1000 growth by more than 10 times. So just in closing, I think the other thing that investors miss is the power that quality growth and valuation brings together. We spend significant time on on the research and valuation, and we have that long-term view.
1: That's that's super clear. And Samina, it'd be great to bring you in because listening to Holly and the sort of Loomis approach, clearly, when you're selecting managers, you're you're looking to take the best funds and managers to, to colour in the asset allocation that Will and his team come up with, but, but actually also to blend them effectively. And, and that itself is a very specialist area you're not picking the individual companies or stocks themselves. You're, you're trying to find the companies, the individuals, the teams that are going to deliver to, to meet our criteria. So with that, I guess, despite the disclaimers, it is human nature that we'll tend to look at past performance. But interested to know for you and the team as the professionals in this space, does past performance play a role?
3: Thanks, Nikki. So you know, we always say that you know, past performance is never a guarantee of, of future returns. And, and we would never pick a manager or fund just because it had delivered the highest return over the last year or three years or so. Um, I mean performance is one of the components that we as a team assess when it comes to selecting funds or, or a manager. But we're more interested in ascertaining how a manager or fund will perform in the future as we want to ensure alpha going forward so we will look at track record and assess periods of when a fund manager has outperformed or underperformed and seeing whether that's in line with their style and process if not that would lead to further scrutiny from us as a team because we're trying to identify managers who over a long time period regardless of style will deliver returns as such what's important in assessing a manager is assessing a manager's consistency throughout an economic cycle and whether they have that robust process which reflects their philosophy. We also will analyse the firm and and the team in depth. So we will look at boutique firms as well, because we have found very good, strong um, teams and funds at at boutique firms too. And also looking at their culture and transparency, because that's also very important, alongside getting to know individuals or team who run the strategy and identifying any possible weaknesses. And, And we saw how important this was Or was in the last few years since the start of the pandemic as a team we've been having more frequent conversations with our managers to make sure that you know what are they doing in terms of positioning and is that still alongside their process if this was going against the grain of this then that would be a red flag for us and it's positive to see on our side how engaging our managers have been and transparent with what they're doing. For example, you know, Lumicells and Holly have been great in, you know, reaching out to us even more frequently to let us know their thoughts and, and their activity in their portfolios. Um, and just to finish off, um, as a team, we do believe that investing should be done in a sustainable manner. So whether, you know, uh, our funds are traditional or, or sustainable funds, we do think managers should be looking at E, S, and G, as these can all be investment risks if not taken into account.
1: That's that's really clear. And and I think, you know, what you're saying there about, you know, when you're talking to the managers in advance and you're doing your due diligence, understanding their process but actually then seeing that evidence that they're actually doing what they say they're going to do and and just going back to the idea of blending it's something that will mentions a lot around us not putting too much store in in one style or another diversifying fully how how do you practically do that
3: sure i completely agree with with will you know very few can consistently predict which sectors style or even region will 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 perform, and there's little evidence to support timing exposure to factors or styles. And I think in the last years or so, has showed how important it is to be diversified across these various factors. So we think it makes sense not to try and second guess the market and have a blended approach towards this, um, especially when you know, there are a lot of uncertainties that could be around the, the corner. So, you know, we do blend value core and growth strategies, but it's also especially important to make sure that the managers that we have within those subsections are the best at what they're doing and they stick to their knitting. So, you know, for what I mentioned before, we look at all of that. Because we want to make sure we're delivering outperformance from different sources at different periods of the market cycle. So when blending managers, we do keep in mind active share, for example, ensuring low correlation between the managers, whether that be to style, region or sectors. And this is a key component to make sure that we can deliver returns and, and mitigate swings in performance Also, as a team, we use various tools to help us aid blending managers and keeping an eye on various risk metrics. And we also have an amazing quant team internally that helps us in doing some of this.
1: Very good. Uh, Thank you for bringing that to life, Samina. So. Will, just in closing this off, any, any final thoughts?
4: I think they've said it all. I mean, I was taking notes furiously through all of that. Ironically, the only time I had to stop was when the two miniature Dachshunds tried to attack an Amazon delivery guy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is perfect timing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was trying to shout at them quietly, you know, that kind of whispered swear words of <laughs> <at> the dogs <laughs> while, uh, uh, while they do it. It was a suspiciously large box as well for my wife, obviously. But um, <laughs> but yes, no, I thought that was brilliant and, and, and summed up exactly. So thank you so much, Holly and Samina. That really was... The That was super interesting and I hope hope our listeners found that as informative as I did.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Samina. And I hope our listeners and subscribers found that as interesting as I did. And we'll be back with you for more Word on the Street next week.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.